0: This episode of Engineering Matters was made in partnership with Mott McDonald
1: This morning the College of Commissioners agreed on the European Green Deal. The re- European Green Deal is on one hand our vision for a climate neutral continent in 2050 and it's on the other hand a very dedicated roadmap to this goal. It's kind of 50 actions for 2050 our goal is to reconcile the economy with our planet to reconcile the way we produce the way we consume with our planet and to make it work for our people I'm convinced that the old growth model that is based on fossil fuels and pollution is out of date, and it is out of touch with our planet. We do not have all the answers yet, today is the start of a journey. But this is Europe's man on the moon moment.
0: Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne and the voice you just heard was the President of the European Commission, Ursula von Leyen, announcing a revolutionary new agreement called the European Green Deal. Some of us in the UK might have missed it. Her announcement came in mid-December, just as the UK was in the midst of a monumental general election that had our relationship with Europe at its heart. As Boris Johnson pledged to get Brexit done, European politicians were pledging to save the planet. The European Green Deal sets out a roadmap for Europe's transition to becoming the world's first green continent. It will be underpinned by the European climate law and a 100 billion euro investment fund intended to support what Ursula described as a just transition to cleaner technologies and production methods that will lower European emissions in a socially fair way. At the top of the list for decarbonisation are energy, buildings, and transport. If any of this sounds familiar, that's because the UK has already made a commitment to becoming carbon neutral by 2050. In fact, the UK was the first major economy to set a legally binding target for carbon neutrality, better known as net zero, in June 2019.
2: Net zero means we need to do things differently.
0: This is Mark Crouch carbon management lead for Mott MacDonald. Every year since 2013, the engineering consultants brought together experts from across the industry to discuss lowering emissions through better engineering approaches at its carbon crunch event in London. Previous events spread awareness of the Infrastructure Carbon Review, showing that reducing carbon saves cost, and showcased the world's first ever standard for managing carbon in infrastructure, PAS 2080. At the latest carbon crunch at the end of last year, building a net-zero economy drove the agenda, just as it did in Madrid at COP25, an international climate conference properly known as the 25th Conference of Parties. It was at the 21st Conference of Parties held in Paris back in 2015 that just about every nation in the world signed up to the Paris Agreement pledging to cut carbon emissions in order to prevent the global temperature from rising more than 2 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial average. The fact that man-made greenhouse gas emissions are driving climate change is no longer in dispute worldwide. But the speed and severity of climate change led many nations to declare a state of climate emergency in 2019. The UK and most members of the European Union among them. In response, they've committed to stop contributing to climate change by 2050. It's impossible to cut emissions to absolute zero. So carbon will have to be captured and stored or sequestered to achieve net zero emissions.
2: There's there's a whole new level of ambition and urgency that comes from net zero, that means the old way of doing things, um, waiting for for innovation, waiting for, for new technologies to be risk-free investments, um, we may need to tip that balance and, uh, and really up the scale of the ambition. If we carry on doing things the way that we currently are, we're not going to get the reductions that we need fast enough for net zero.
0: This is the crunch issue for the whole of society and the infrastructure that supports it. How to turn ambitions into action. How to take practical steps that will get our emission of greenhouse gases down to net zero within three decades. It won't be easy. This is Jenny Hill, team leader for buildings and international action at the Committee on Climate Change, which advises the government on climate policy.
3: The government asked us to look at how we update our long term targets to reflect the fact that the UK is a signatory to the Paris Agreement under the UNFCCC.
0: That's the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. In May 2019, the committee advised that the UK had to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050.
3: And in June this year, the minister signed that into law, making the UK the first major economy in the world to do so.
0: Jenny says that setting a target is just the start of a tough journey.
3: The target that we've set is absolutely achievable, but at the same time it is incredibly ambitious. And it is incredibly ambitious in terms of what it implies for infrastructure, which uh, must look at a complete overhaul essentially over the next few years if we're to start building infrastructure which is net zero compliant.
0: This means targeting the most emissions intensive sectors, energy, heating and transport. It involves abandoning fossil fuel power generation and converting carbon intensive industries to renewable energy, dramatically improving energy efficiency through extensive green retrofits and designing all new infrastructure for a net zero future.
3: Now we think that implies a doubling of electricity demands, and that is equivalent to quadrupling levels of low carbon energy supply. And that will enable you to decarbonise substantive amounts of your economy, so things like uh, surface transport, i.e. cars and vans, um, but also industry and we think it could really help for uh, decarbonising what we call baseload heat demand, so heat from buildings. But that's not enough because you're left with a whole set of energy demands, which we don't think are currently viable or cost-effective for switching across to electricity. And that's where we think that low carbon hydrogen has a really important role to play. And that then means you can decarbonise some of your really uh, tricky demands in industry, uh, but also heavy transport, so things like heavy goods vehicles, uh, shipping and so on.
0: The Committee on Climate Change also says carbon capture and storage must be employed at scale quickly but to ensure that the government needs to act.
3: That the easy part is is done, the easy part is is setting the target, Um, but that target doesn't bear weight unless we put in place the policies and the financial and funding commitments to back it
0: up. As chair of the Committee on Climate Change, Lord Debrun warned in a letter to Prime Minister Boris Johnson just before Christmas, the government must urgently create policy frameworks that will drive change and give investors and asset owners certainty so they can act with confidence. Andrew Hall is from Aviva Investors Infrastructure Debt Team, one of the largest investors in infrastructure in the UK. Aviva's focused on offshore wind and solar power, and is looking at new sectors that are likely to emerge on the path to net zero.
4: From a financing perspective, the clearer this path is, the more defined it is, the easier it will be to actually achieve uh, the financing we need.
0: Financing assets takes time. Offshore wind has a long track record and clear funding structure through the government's Contracts for Difference regime. But it's taken more than two decades to create the market. New things like batteries, small modular nuclear reactors, hydrogen networks and carbon capture and storage are where wind power was in the 90s. Embryonic technology, poorly understood risks, lack of market capacity and immature supply chains with no efficiencies of scale and no government policy yet to guide their development. It's no surprise that investors are wary. Without a proven technological track record, viable commercial model or funding certainty investors won't lend.
4: There is a huge amount of money, there's more money than than is needed to finance this, but no one's going to lend money to projects unless they're going to get their money back. And that comes down to funding.
0: Funding hinges on who will pay. Will return on investment come from government through taxation, from business levies, or direct from consumers via customer charges?
4: Ultimately, if you don't have clarity on where that funding is coming from, no one's actually going to lend the money to these projects.
0: What investors want to see is a detailed pathway to net zero, showing what changes to infrastructure are needed, by when, backed by firm government commitment. No policy flip-flopping or U-turns. For government to create more market certainty, Andrew wants to see guidance on the technology mix and commercial incentives, such as continuing the contracts for difference regime, or provision of direct financing for emerging technologies.
4: And in terms of direct financing, we would propose um, the formation of a of an arms-length government entity to help drive that. I suppose the best comparable, not exactly the same, is probably the Green Investment Bank in its early days. And that can be a mix of both um, direct financing but also guarantees. And I think the one thing we would encourage is that that needs to focus more on development financing. When we look at some of these newer things like carbon capture and storage, uh, nuclear modular, for example, they could really benefit from an investor who's, who's willing to take more risk on development of assets.
0: The arms-length body Andrew suggests would develop financial models to attract private finance. Like other speakers at the Carbon Crunch event, Andrew said time is running out to set the stage for action. In the context of all that's required to achieve net zero, 30 years is not very long.
4: Whilst it's doable, we don't have much time to waste. So whilst just letting the private sector get on with it and see what comes out as the best, I think there's a real danger there that we will then miss the target.
0: What we need is a roadmap, says Dr. Yannick Giesekam from the University of Leeds. He does research into energy demand solutions.
5: So the reason that we need a new roadmap now and why it's particularly timely uh, is we've seen a, a large increase in commitments in the last six months towards delivering net zero. Uh, We've seen a large number of companies come out in construction declares, you know, over 800 practices saying, you know, we we want to get behind this, there's a climate emergency, we want to get behind this vision of net zero.
6: I think a roadmap is a great idea because we need to be collaborating more closely to make sure that we're not um, duplicating our efforts.
0: This is Claire Brightley, Carbon Management Lead at Yorkshire Water. The whole of the water industry is pledged to become carbon neutral by 2030 and Yorkshire Water, like all the other companies, is in the throes of working out how to do it. Yorkshire Water is already committed to planting a million trees on land tones to absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. It's buying only renewable energy, making all its vehicles electric and there's other things too like
6: self-generation of energy, so we generated 12% of our energy needs last year and we're hoping to um, increase that to 15% this year.
0: That's being achieved by treating sewage sludge using a process that produces lots of methane gas, which is used instead of ordinary natural gas as an energy source. Yorkshire Water's also investing £1.6 million over the course of 2020 in efficiency projects, using funding from the Energy Saving Opportunity Scheme, ESOS, managed by the Environment Agency. Yorkshire Water is tackling emissions on three fronts. Reducing carbon arising from the delivery of capital projects, driving efficiency in operations and by sequestering carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. It involves measuring and monitoring carbon, something never done before. And that's revealing potential conflicts between different operational objectives. For example, to protect the natural environment from pollution, Yorkshire Water is required to remove phosphorus from the treated wastewater before it's discharged into water courses.
6: Um, We have to meet some very tight consents in terms of how much of the phosphorus we've got to take out. And the way that we do that is going to involve a lot of chemical dosing at our plants and that involves a lot more pumping of electricity use as well, obviously. And that's what is uh, resulting in a a big spike in our operational emissions over the next few years whilst that sort of programme of work comes on board.
0: Phosphorus removal is an issue for water companies right across the country, and treatment will be pushing carbon emissions up even as the industry is trying to bring them down. Better that high phosphorus concentrations weren't an issue in the first place. That would remove the need to treat, along with the associated carbon emissions. It's one of a range of issues that requires more joined up thinking than's common in the infrastructure industry. Phosphorus pollution is an issue best tackled at source, and that requires behaviour change far beyond the boundaries of the water industry. Farmers, manufacturers of household products and homeowners themselves all have the power to reduce or remove the problem and avoid the associated carbon. Carbon reduction conflicts with other operational objectives too. One of
6: the the main options that we thought was going to really help us with driving down our operational carbon emissions was we're doing a lot of work to try and reduce leakage across our network. So if we reduce leakage, we're going to need to do less pumping and therefore we'll be using less energy.
0: The expectation was that operationally this would be a great energy and carbon saving activity.
6: However, when we looked into our plans and we looked at what the capital carbon impact of that was, we could see that actually, in most cases, the capital carbon impact far outweighed the operational benefit that we got from these measures. I think what it's showing us really is that we're going to have to be more innovative about how we go about doing that prevention of leakage. Um, I think the, the data that we looked at was probably based on um, older techniques, um, more, more business um, as usual sort of techniques and we need to look at the innovation that's out there so that we are employing techniques to reduce that leakage which don't have such a big capital carbon impact.
0: As Mott McDonald's Mark Crouch said earlier, doing things differently is crucial in the drive towards net zero. The impact of capital carbon is particularly important on major projects. One of the biggest underway in the UK is expansion at Heathrow Airport. As part of the aviation industry, Heathrow is acutely aware of its responsibility for reducing emissions.
5: I'm Mark Edwards and I am embedding a low-carbon resource-efficient approach into the delivery of the expansion of Heathrow Airport.
0: Heathrow's expansion will add a third runway to the northwest of the current airport. The master plan was submitted for public consultation in the summer of 2019 and the planning application is expected in mid-2020. The decision to approve construction or not will be made through a process known as a Development Consent Order or DCO. If given the OK, Heathrow's expansion schedule extends from 2022 all the way to 2050.
5: As well as the runway, we also need to build all the infrastructure to enable us to operate that third runway. We've got to move the M25. So we need to lower the M25, pop the runway over it. Um, We've also got to move a few, um, couple of A roads, all the local roads. We've got to, the site, we're building on about 20 landfill sites. provides us with a bit of complications. We've got seven rivers to divert, and that's nearly three kilometres worth of river diversions. We've got to move an immigration retention centre, there's a BT data centre, there's IAG headquarters, and we're also building um, nearly three million metres squared of airport related buildings.
0: When Heathrow embarked on expansion, there wasn't a consistent approach for setting carbon reduction targets and measuring performance. Every major client was doing it differently.
5: So what I wanted to do for Heathrow was actually take an evidence-based approach, kind of work out, right, well, hang on, what should our target really be? Um, and I was also very keen to just then share that with uh, the industry so that, you know, there's no nobody has to reinvent the wheel. If you think what we've done is good, then by all means, take it, use it, build on it.
0: The case study and methodology will be shared via a new white paper that Heathrow and Mark McDonald are in the process of writing. Here's Mark Crouch again.
5: So
2: for a project, like Heathrow, uh, a complex, unique, one-off piece of infrastructure that's got many different components, having a methodology for understanding in the early stages of that project, not only how to set the baseline, but how you can set a target against that, that is going to going to achieve a lot of different objectives and that's actually going to work in practice. There's a lot of examples of projects that have set a target that either has been too high which may seem ambitious uh that, that and, and stretchy and incentivize the supply chain, but the reality is that people soon realise it's a KPI they can't hit. You end up coming against contraction procurement problems with that. Equally, it does need to be high enough so that you are making it ambitious, yet achievable, and it will work in practice. And to date, lots of different organizations have approached that problem in different ways. And so when a project of Heathrow's scale goes through this process, they, they reach out to industry and do all this learning, and then apply, uh, apply different processes to get there. That's not to say that other projects need to necessarily follow the same approach, but it's really important that we share that learning to save other people from going through that same journey.
0: So what exactly is Heathrow doing and how? They started by researching how other projects have measured carbon, set targets and monitored performance. And then they looked at the policy environment, in particular the UK's Climate Change Act, which was updated in 2019 to mandate net zero. Mark Edwards says the important thing is that their approach is evidence-based.
5: So what we did is we basically looked at those high-level trajectories and basically did some modelling to try and understand, well, okay, we know the size of Heathrow, we know how much it's going to cost, we know what we're going to build, Where well, how does it fit into that trajectory? So that gave us a, a band, if you like, a top-down band for the target um, between roughly 20 to 30%, something like that. So if we set a target within that band, we would be meeting the trajectory that was required. So that was the top-down bit. Then we also looked at it from a bottom-up perspective.
0: This meant looking at what was to be built using what methods and which materials, and discovering what was possible was between a 15 and a 25% reduction. This coincided with the top-down numbers giving a realistic target zone. Delivering major projects like this, from the bottom up, are main contractors, those in command of the supply chain.
7: I'm Adam Crossley, I'm the Director of Environment at Skanska UK.
0: Contractor Skanska is leading the construction industry by pledging to become net zero ahead of the UK's national target. By 2045, Skanska will be carbon neutral, and by 2030, it will have halved its carbon emissions relative to a baseline measured in 2010.
7: Well, when we're thinking about climate change, I think it's really important for any business to understand uh, what their impact is and where it's responsible for them to set um, a target and uh, what that target should be. And for a big construction company, um, what we found we were doing was actually setting targets around the received uh, scopes provided to us by the greenhouse gas protocol. But when we looked at that objectively, we realized it wasn't reflecting actually where our impact was. Our impact was the supply chain that we, we put to work. And so really, once you've realized that, the only responsible thing to do is to set a target for that. Um, and the only responsible target is net zero. We picked 2010 as our start baseline, because that's when we started reporting to CMARS, so we had a good comparator uh, for our direct emissions.
0: CMARS stands for the Certified Emissions Measurement and Reduction Scheme.
7: We hadn't collected carbon emissions data along that way, but we did know the quantities of materials we'd bought. So we just uh, cleaned that data and applied carbon factors to it, which gives you your total supply chain carbon emissions. And then, we got, and then we got the approach verified externally to make sure it was a sensible
0: approach. Skanska decided to classify carbon in a simple, clear way. It counts its direct emissions, those it produces itself through all its own operations. It counts indirect emissions, those produced by its supply chain and it counts emissions over which it has influence. Those arising over the lifetime of the asset it creates. Across its supply chain, Skanska found lots of variety in approaches to carbon accounting and in strategies for decarbonisation.
7: Some of the bigger ones already have very established, well-developed approaches to decarbonisation anyway, so we're able to just fit in with those, Uh, whereas some suppliers hadn't been at the stage where they were looking at carbon. And because of the way we approached it in a collaborative way, uh, we were able to begin a dialogue with them to help upskill them uh, in, in, in what their approach could be.
0: Adam emphasises the importance of dialogue. Scanska wants to help its supply chain drive carbon out of projects. It's inviting innovation, sharing best practice, and supportive of new materials and methods. In the near term, it's treating decarbonisation as a collaborative project, but with a strong element of challenge that will become even more ambitious over time. Suppliers will be expected to rise to that challenge.
7: So it's been a a really positive response, uh, but we're still only in the first uh, year of of rolling it out. So we've still got a long way to go.
0: In an industry that's dominated by five-year regulatory, political and business planning cycles, 30 years feels like a long time. But the distance to go from today's carbon-intensive infrastructure paradigm to a net zero one demands a racing start and a sustained fast pace. As Europe set out its Green Deal in December, the World Federation of Engineering Organisations, representing over 30 million engineers worldwide, called for a paradigm shift in engineering practice to ensure that meeting the needs of society does not breach the Earth's ecological boundaries. In November 2020, the UK will become a focal point for efforts to halt global climate change when the Conference of Parties meets in Glasgow at COP26. The challenge will be to secure commitments to more ambitious carbon reduction than those pledged after the Paris Agreement. And this is crucial because the current level of ambition of emissions reduction won't curb global heating to the sustainable level of under two degrees there's universal agreement that the goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions to net zero is possible.
2: The solutions are out there, we've also heard that the funding and the finance is out there, but there are, at the moment there's, there's some barriers that need to be overcome.
0: The crunch issue for carbon reduction is accelerating the pace at which technical solutions and investments can be brought together. It's no exaggeration that our future depends on it. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, produced by Ross McPherson, edited by John Young and Andrew Medius. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps, including iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Or you can find us on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review and share us on social media. You can tweet us at engineer Matters.